Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Our text this morning is going to be Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, Luke's account of what is commonly known as the the Jerusalem Council, the first church council of uh, church uh, history. Now, last Sunday, uh, in the last paragraph of chapter 14, we, we saw Paul and Barnabas return from their first missionary journey, return to Syrian Antioch, where they had been uh, originally commissioned and, and sent out. And we read in the last verse of chapter 14 uh, that they remained no little time with the disciples. And I can only imagine that that was a sweet time for Paul and Barnabas, a a time of of relaxation and recuperation after their uh, long and sometimes arduous missionary journey. But we find out that it didn't last. In the first verse of chapter 15, Luke tells us that sometime later, we're not quite sure how long, but sometime later, some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it was this teaching, this teaching of the, of the Judaizers, of the so-called circumcision party, that prompted the church to call the council in Jerusalem. But before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word this morning, let's pray and ask for his blessing upon the ministry of his word here this morning. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you now, prepared to hear your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would indeed give us the love and the faith and the the humility to receive it, not as the mere words of men, but as it really is, as the very words of God. And Father, give us the grace not only to, to receive it, Father, but to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. This is the very word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and uh, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? 
by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Children, you can come forward to meet me uh, at the front. All right, guys, yeah, just find a seat anywhere on the steps there. Now, Pastor Sam is in Wisconsin, so you're stuck with me again, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, how many of you, how many of you ever have, have had trouble doing what you knew you were supposed to do? Is that ever hard? Is it ever hard to, to do what you know you're supposed to do? You can, you can sit down, buddy. Anybody, you, you never have trouble doing what you're supposed to do? It's just like easy? Easy to like always perfectly obey your, your mom? Yeah, no, no, that's not so easy. And any of the other you, do you guys, do you guys ever, do you ever have trouble doing what you're supposed to do? Yeah, yeah, sometimes. And and I think lots of kids have have trouble. We there there are things that we want to do that we know we're not supposed to do, but we really want to do them. I can remember a time when I was a kid, uh, and one of my, I was at one of my friends' houses, and uh, their parents told them, "Hey, don't go outside; it's raining." And my friend was like. Yeah, but those puddles look so fun, you know. And so my friend kind of just snuck up to the window, and he was looking outside. And eventually he got to the door, and he was just sort of playing with the door handle. And eventually he went outside. And right as he was opening the door to go outside, his mom came into the room and said, Hey, I told you not to go out there. And he's like, Yes, Mom, I know, but it's worth it. And he ran out into the, into the yard to, to play in the puddles, even though he knew he was going to get a spanking. He knew it wasn't what he was supposed to do. He knew what his mom had told him, and yet he did it anyway. Because, he, because it's sometimes really hard for us to do what we're supposed to do. And you, you know what? That trouble is not limited to kids. Did you know that your parents sometimes struggle to do what they're supposed to do? Did you know sometimes it's really hard for them to, to love their neighbor? It's, it's sometimes really hard for them to, to be kind and, to, and gentle and generous. It's, it's hard for them to do their work as unto the Lord. We struggle to do what we are supposed to do, not just when we're little kids, but, but all our lives because we are sinners. And, and we struggle to do, we struggle to do the things that we know we're supposed to do. And that's why, did you hear in the verses I just read? Peter, the Apostle Peter, 
referred to God's law, the, 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 the book of what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, he referred to it as a burden that we can't bear. It's, it's a heavy burden that we cannot pick up by ourselves. And that means that we cannot earn God's salvation. We cannot be good enough to make God save us. We cannot be good enough to, we've been talking this morning about the new heavens and the new earth. God's going to have a new kingdom, right? He's going to make all things new. And you can't be good enough to earn an inheritance of that. So does that mean that you can never go to heaven? No, no why not? We can. So how, why can we go to heaven? But, but, but we can't be good enough. So we can try, but I'm telling you, Peter says the law's net is, what say again? If we believe in God and we believe in his son. Who's his son? Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He died on the cross for us because he took our punishment. Right? And so we can't be good enough to go to heaven, but we don't have to be because Jesus came and he died in our place and rose again so that we could have an inheritance in the coming kingdom. And because he did that for us, all that we have to do is believe in him. We don't have to keep the law ourselves. We don't have to be good enough ourselves because Jesus has already been good enough for us. And because he has earned a place for us, in God's coming kingdom, because he has earned a place for us in heaven, and we don't have to earn it for ourselves, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. All right, you guys can go be seated. If you have not done so already, open your Bibles to that passage. To Gen uh, Exodus, uh, Exodus, uh, to Acts uh, 15. Acts chapter 15. This, this account of the Jerusalem council. And, and this, this account uh, can really be divided into three parts, all right? First, we have the question. That's, that's presented there right at the very beginning. It's, it's clearly stated in verse 1. Uh, the question is, does a person have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And in case we missed it, it's, it's repeated for emphasis again in verse 5 as these Pharisees stand up and just say, it is necessary to circumcise them. That is to, to circumcise the Gentiles who are coming to faith. It's, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So that's the, that's the question that is under discussion. That's the question that, that prompted the church to, to call this council. Then we have the discussion of the council itself. There's, there's some discussion there between the, uh, Paul and the, the so-called Judaizers there in verses 2 through 4 as, as we're told that he has no little dissension with them uh, and, he, and he debates with them, but, but they're not being persuaded. And so eventually the, uh, the question is brought to this council and we hear the, uh, the, the council's discussion there beginning in verse 6. And, and we hear specifically Peter, Paul, and James all address the question. And then finally, beginning at verse 19, we have the council's decision, which, is, which actually spills into the next uh, passage as they will write a letter communicating this decision uh, to the churches. Now, there's no way we're going to deal with all of that this morning, so we're, our, our, our focus is going to be on the question and the discussion. Next Sunday, uh, Sam is going to take up the, the council's decision in this letter that they write uh, to the, the churches. But this morning, we're going to look first at the question... 
And then uh, at, the, at the debate, at how they come to a conclusion about the question that is uh, before them. Let's start with the question itself. And as I said, it's, it's right there in verse 1. Luke writes, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So again, that's the question. The question is, does a person have to be circumcised in order to be saved? Now, I, I recognize that this is probably not a question that keeps you up at night. You know, this, is, this is not a question that we, we really wrestle with today, but I, but I hope to show you that this is a question uh, that, that is pertinent for the church today. This is a question that we do struggle with just in a different uh, form. And so let's look again. And how we're supposed to understand this question. We're told that Paul and Barnabas uh, at first tried to uh, dispute with them uh, there in uh, Antioch. They, they had no small dissension and debate with them regarding this teaching. But again, to, to no avail. These men would not be persuaded. And not only would they not be persuaded, but they were actually claiming that the apostles were on their side. <laughs> They were claiming that they were the ones teaching the apostolic gospel, and that it was Paul uh, who had deviated from the path. It was Paul who was innovating. It was, it was Paul who was introducing heterodox teachings. We, we know this from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, Paul wrote his letter uh, about the, the, the same time uh, to address these very same issues to these very same uh, churches. And, and when Paul addresses this issue uh, in uh, his letter to the Galatians, he refers to these men not as coming from Judea, but he refers to them as coming from James. He refers to them as coming from the apostles in Jerusalem, not just from uh, Jerusalem. Now, it's uncertain whether or not James ever actually agreed with these false teachers. Luke's account is going to make it clear that, that James sides with Paul at the council. However, it is possible that James initially agreed with the Judaizers. We know this is possible because Paul's letter to the Galatians reveals that both Peter and Barnabas actually sided uh, with these Judaizers at some point. Uh, they both speak for Paul. They both speak on Paul's side at the council. And yet, at some point uh, previously, they had both sided with those who, who demanded circumcision. Peter was, was actually rebuked to his face by uh, Paul, in, uh, as he tells us in his letter to the Galatians. And, and Paul tells us that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So it's not inconceivable that at some point James had sided with these Judaizers. But we know that, that as the council comes together uh, and as they are confronted with the truth of the gospel, uh, as it was uh, revealed in Jesus Christ, uh, they, they see the error of that. They see the error of, of requiring circumcision. And they, they return to the true gospel, the true gospel of justification in Christ alone by faith alone. And that's what we need to see this morning. Whether or not James ever actually sided with these false teachers, what we need to see uh, is that uh, these men uh, that were opposing Paul and opposing the gospel that he had uh, preached, uh, that they were claiming apostolic authority, that Paul was claiming apostolic authority, and so the church calls a council in Jerusalem and actually appoints Paul and Barnabas to go along with some other men from the church in order to address this question. In order to, to decide, is it actually true that a person must be circumcised according to the tradition of Moses in order to be saved? But before we look at the 
the council's debate. Before we look at the, the council itself, I, I want us, I said, to, to really understand the significance of this question because it, it may at least at first strike us as a question that is irrelevant to the church today. There's, there's no one in the church today suggesting that a person must be circumcised in order to be saved. So, so what is the significance of what is being claimed here and why was it important enough that the church called a council to address the question. Well, first, let me, let me point out that these men are not denying that Jesus is the Messiah. All right, We, we need to understand that. Th- these men who are claiming that it's necessary for a person to be circumcised are not denying that Jesus is the Christ. They are, they are not denying that he is the Savior. Now... There were, of course, Jews who denied that Jesus was the Christ. Paul has has addressed them. He's dealt with them throughout his his missionary journey. And we are actually told in chapter 9 that that Paul argued with these men and proved that Jesus was the Christ from the Scriptures. However, that is not what is going on here. Paul is not here arguing with men who deny that Jesus is the Christ. But rather, here he is debating with Jews who have been convinced that Jesus is the Christ. These these people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They they believe that he is the long-promised Savior. They believe that he is David's greater son. So what's wrong? If if they believe that Jesus is the Christ, what's what's going on here? What's what's wrong with their teaching? What's wrong with their teaching is that they also believe that a person must be a Jew in order to be saved by Jesus. Jesus will only save God's people. And God's people are the Jews. That's what they are teaching. Therefore, if a Gentile is to be saved... He must convert to Judaism. If a a Gentile is to be saved, he must be circumcised because circumcision is the sign and seal of that conversion. Circumcision is the sign that a person intends to submit to the Mosaic law and live like a Jew. And so at its most basic, the the teaching that is being presented here, the the teaching that Paul is so strenuously opposing, is the teaching that a person must be a Jew in good standing, must be a a law-abiding Jew in order to be saved, that Jesus will save only God's people, and God's people are Jews. So Gentiles can be saved, but only if they convert to Judaism. Only if they become Jews. Gentiles can be saved, but not as Gentiles. They they can be saved, but only by by putting off their Gentileness and taking on the mantle of the Mosaic law. That's the discussion. That's what's what's being proposed here. However, it's it's important for us to realize that this is not entirely or, or purely an ethnic claim. The claim is not that Jesus will save the Jews merely because they are Jews. Rather, the claim is that Jesus will save the Jews who keep the law. And it's that law-keeping that is at the heart of this debate about circumcision. What's being proposed is that Jesus will save the righteous. Jesus will save those who have 
establish their own righteousness through the law. Jesus will, will save those who have proven themselves worthy by keeping all things written in the book of the law. In fact, that's the, the whole point of being a Pharisee. Notice that's what these men are called there in verse 5. They are of the party of the, the Pharisees. And who are the Pharisees? We're, we're used to thinking of them as the bad guys. But, but the Pharisees were, were those who, who lived there in, in the first century who were devoted to keeping the law. They, they saw themselves as, as set apart. In fact, that's what their, their name means. Uh, to be a Pharisee is to be one set apart. And, and what are they set apart from? Well, not just the Gentiles. That's sort of taken for granted. Of course they're set apart from the Gentiles. But when they speak of themselves as set apart, they are speaking of themselves as set apart from their non-law-keeping brothers, from, from those who, who were not quite as strict in their law observance as they were. They didn't, they didn't follow all the, uh, the, the jots and the tittles. They, they didn't follow all the days and the, the years and the food laws and, and, and whatnot. They, they didn't follow the laws closely as they should. Yeah, like I said, it went without saying that they were set apart from the Gentiles, but what's going on here is that these Pharisees see a distinction amongst the Jews. Those who keep the law, those who establish their righteousness by their law-keeping, and those who are sinners. Those who do not. Just think of uh, Jesus' description of the Pharisee as he prayed in the temple in Luke 18. How did he speak? He said, I thank God that I am not like other men. And who are those other men? It's his fellow Jews. He's not speaking about Gentiles there. He's speaking about his fellow Jews who do not keep the law as strictly as he does. And so what we need to see here in order to really understand what's going on is that while this is an ethnic claim, while it is a claim that God will save only the Jews, it is not purely an ethnic claim. The claim is that Jesus will save only those worthy of salvation. That Jesus will, will save only those who have demonstrated their worthiness by keeping the law of Moses with circumcision as the sign and, and seal of their devotion to the law and their intention to, to keep every part of it. Thus the claim that a person must be circumcised in order to be saved is not a second level issue. It's not second level, but rather it is at the very heart of the gospel. This is, this is not like a disagreement about whether or not the, the children of believers should be baptized. Christians disagree about that question. They have disagreed about that question for, for centuries and, and millennia. But, but they recognize, hopefully, that, that the, the, those with whom they disagree are still believers, are still their brothers and sisters in, in Christ. This is, this is not a, a question that puts your salvation at risk. We understand baptism differently, but we are still united to one another in Christ. It's a second-level issue. That is not the way that Paul sees this disagreement. This is not a second-level disagreement. This is not a, a disagreement about a, a, a second-level issue. This is a disagreement about the gospel itself. In his letter to the Galatians, which I mentioned earlier, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to what? To a different gospel. Not that there is another one, Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This claim that circumcision is necessary strikes at the very heart of the gospel, so much so that later in that same letter, Paul can write, if you accept circumcision, if you submit to this, 
If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Think about that. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And he goes on, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that if you accept circumcision, you are obligated to keep the whole law. If you're going to endeavor to establish your own righteousness with God through the law, then you better keep all of it. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. It's commonly recognized that this is some of the strongest language in all of Paul's letters. Because Paul recognizes that this question of circumcision is a question about the very heart of the gospel. To to require circumcision is to undermine and fundamentally alter the gospel at a foundational level. So much so that if you require circumcision, you are not preaching the gospel at all. To require circumcision is to separate a person from Christ. To require circumcision is to put a person back under the law. And it cannot be both and. I mean, it cannot, it cannot be both and. It must be either or. Either Christ or circumcision, not both. Why? Because requiring circumcision requires a person to establish their own righteousness. To require circumcision is, is still to regard Jesus as the Savior. Yes, it is, it is Jesus who will save you. It is Jesus who will rescue you from this present evil age. It is, it is Jesus who will bring you into the, the kingdom to come. But if you require circumcision, you are saying that Jesus will save those who are worthy of that salvation. Jesus will save those who have earned that salvation by their own law-keeping, by their own works of the law. Jesus will save those who have proven themselves by abiding by all things written in the book of the law. And that's not the gospel. In fact, that is antithetical to the gospel. That undermines the gospel. The truth is that Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. He came for those who had not and could not keep the law. The only righteousness that that Jesus requires, if we may even put it that way, the only righteousness he requires is faith. If If the church requires circumcision as a pledge to keep the law in order to be saved, then the church turns the gospel into a gospel of works rather than grace. If we're going to preach the gospel... We must preach salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. This is the only gospel. You see, Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Under the law, we were without hope. Under the law, we were necessarily condemned. Under the law, we were rightly judged ungodly and unrighteous because we are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God, not just once, but again and again and again and again. We cannot establish our own righteousness with God through the law. But the glory of the gospel is that we do not have to. 
Because Jesus came as the righteous one to stand in our place. He came to to do for us what we could not do for ourselves so that God is referred to as the one who, through Christ, justifies who? He justifies the ungodly. He He justifies sinners. Not those who are worthy, not those who have established their own righteousness, but But sinners, those who have fallen short, those who are without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And if you lose that gospel, if you lose a gospel of justification by faith alone, there is no gospel. Because there is no hope for sinners who must earn their way into God's kingdom. There is no hope if we must relate to God through the law. Again, Paul says it clearly in his letter to the Galatians. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, no one, no one abides by all things written in the book of the law. No one keeps the law perfectly, and therefore no one is justified by works of the law. This is what Paul says explicitly in his letter to the Romans. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There is no distinction. None is righteous. No, not one. No one has hope through the law. This is why Peter refers to the law as a burden that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. The law was a gift. It was a blueprint for how to flourish in the land. But as law, it was a burden they could not bear. People could not relate to God through the law. They they could not establish their own righteousness through the law. The law offered life to those who kept it, but no one could keep it. Therefore, it was a burden that no one could bear. And this is why it was necessary for Jesus to come, to be born under the law, so that he might save those who had been condemned by the law. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to earn for us the mantle of righteousness. We couldn't do it ourselves. We we couldn't establish our own righteousness through the law, but through Christ and through faith in him, we are now justified. What does that mean? It means that we are declared righteous. How? Not by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Through faith in him alone, we are now declared righteous and rightfully heirs of the coming kingdom. That is the very heart of the gospel. In Christ, by faith, the ungodly, the the unworthy, the unrighteous are declared righteous and made heirs of the kingdom. See then why Paul opposed this teaching so strenuously. And you see why it still matters for the church today. This is a debate about the very heart of the gospel. Does Jesus save sinners? Or does Jesus save the righteous? Did he come for the healthy Or did he come for the sick? And the good news of the gospel is that he came for the sick. The good news of the gospel is that he came to save sinners. At this time of year, we're thinking about all the ways that that, that we want to improve ourselves. All the things we want to resolve to do in in the coming year. And there's a place for that. I'm all actually all for that. We ought to be striving to, to conform more and more to the image of the glory of our Savior. But do not think for a moment that your standing before God depends upon those efforts. 
In fact, you're free to, to endeavor after holiness because you have already been declared righteous in Christ. You don't have to earn it. It has already been earned for you. You don't have to do the work. The work is finished. It has been done by another. It has been done by Christ. And so if you are here this morning, you are still trying to earn God's favor. You're still trying to earn his blessing. You're still trying to earn an inheritance in his, in his coming kingdom. You know that Peter's right. You know that is a burden you cannot bear. You know that, that with any honesty at all, you, you have to admit that it is crushing you. And if that is where you are this morning, if you are crushed under the burden of the law this morning, if you are crushed under the, the burden of trying to prove yourself to God, of, of trying to establish your own righteousness with Him, then you need to hear the gospel that Paul is fighting for here. You need to hear the good news that you don't have to establish your own righteousness because you already have a righteousness that has been freely given to you by God, received by faith. A righteousness that was established by Jesus in his perfect obedience even to the point of death on the cross. That is the gospel. And it's, it's beautiful news. It is, it is good news beyond our imagining. But of course, if it's beyond our imagining, we have to ask, how do we know it's true? <laughs> how do we know that God will really accept this, this righteousness of, of faith? How do we really know he's not going to require us to, to, to earn it ourselves? Well, that brings us to our second point. And our second point here is how, how does the council know that the gospel that Paul is preaching is the right gospel? And to sum up their answer, we see again and again and again, it's because God told us. God said this was his gospel. Look again at, at what we see in their discussion. We're told that there was quite a bit of, of debate up front. The, 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 the apostles and the elders are all talking, but then Luke records for us sort of the, the final three speeches. Peter, Paul, and then James all stand up to speak. And I, I want us just to notice briefly what each of them has to say. Look first at what, what Peter says there, beginning in verse 7. We're told that Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice. Now, when we hear that language of early days, we might think he's talking about way in the, the past. But he's actually talking about the early days of the church. In the early days of the church, soon after Pentecost, God made a choice. And what was the choice? The choice was to send Peter to the house of a Gentile. The choice was to send Peter to the house of Cornelius. And, and you'll remember that we know this was God's choice because God orchestrated it beautifully. He gave Peter a dream. He gave, he gave Cornelius a dream. He, he sent them together and he said, listen, you need to go with this guy. And so it was, it was clear, it was beyond dispute that, that God had orchestrated this, that God had sent uh, Peter to Cornelius' house, that he had sent Peter so that by, the mouth, uh, that by his mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. But not only did God orchestrate it up front, once, that, once Peter had gone and once he had preached the gospel and once they had believed, God also validated their faith. Look at what he says in verse 8. God who knows the heart, God wasn't fooled, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Just as God had poured out his spirit on the church at Pentecost, he now poured out his spirit on those Gentiles gathered at the house of, of Cornelius when they believed the gospel. Not when they were circumcised, not when they converted to Judaism, but simply when they believed the gospel. 
They received the Holy Spirit, even as the church had received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, Paul, Peter says, why then are you putting God to the test? A language that is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of outright rebellion, the rebellion of God's people against God, testing whether he really is God. So why are you putting God to the test by denying his gospel? He says, we believe uh, that, um, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. This is Peter's conclusion. God sent me to Cornelius. God told me to preach the gospel to them. When they believed, God poured out his spirit on them. And Paul says much the same thing. Look at, look at what we see next, beginning there in verse 12. As Peter is speaking, all the assembly falls silent. And then, when Peter is done, Barnabas and Paul stand up. And what do they speak of? They, they speak of the signs and the wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, again, that, that might seem strange at first. Why are they talking about the miracles they did out on the mission field? Why, why is that the, the, the subject of their conversation? But remember what those signs and those wonders were all about. Why did God do signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles as they were preaching this gospel? Those signs and those wonders were intended to validate the apostles as those who spoke what? The very words of God with God's authority. And so what is Paul saying? Everybody knows the gospel that Paul's preached. It's his his gospel that, that, that stirred up this controversy in the first place. And so Paul is saying, listen, the gospel that I preached on the mission field is a gospel that was validated by God himself. God did signs and wonders through us to demonstrate that we were indeed preaching his gospel, that we were speaking his words. It's why he can say to the Thessalonians, we thank God that you received our words, not as the mere words of men, but as they really are, as the very words of God. And so again, Paul's point is the same as Peter's. Paul's point is that this gospel was validated by God himself. This is not man's gospel. This is is not a gospel that man dreamed up. This is the gospel of God concerning his son, that those who believe in him will be justified, will be reconciled, will be adopted as sons, and will be made heirs of the coming kingdom. That's what brings us then to the final speaker, to to James, who is regarded as in some way the the head of the the church in Jerusalem. Remember, uh, Peter and Paul are out on their missionary journeys. James is the the head of the, the church here, and he begins to speak there in verse 13. And after he sort of recounts uh, what uh, Peter and James have said, what does, what does he say? He says that all of this is in agreement with what the prophet said long ago. And then he quotes for them uh, this passage from Amos, speaking about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And what is James' point? His point is simply this. His point is that the inclusion of the Gentiles had been God's plan all along. It had been God's plan from the very beginning. When he sent Peter to to Cornelius and we did signs and wonders through the hands of, of Paul and Barnabas, he was not changing course He was not doing something unexpected. The the inclusion of the Gentiles uh, by, by faith alone was not some sort of plan B because the law didn't work. That's not what's going on here. But on the contrary, God was doing what he had always intended to do, what he had always said he was going to do. From the very beginning, God had called Abraham and set him apart, not so that only his family might be blessed, but so that all the families of the earth might be blessed through him. 
And so this gospel of grace, this, this gospel of, of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, this is God's gospel. That's the point. That's how the, how the council reaches its decision. It's, it's asking, what has God done? Earlier in the service, we, we confessed our faith together. Why? Because we don't make this up. We come as those submitted to the word of God. And so it was from the very beginning. Even the Jerusalem council doesn't make up the gospel. They receive the gospel from God. They submit to what God has said. And what has God said? God has said, I will justify the one who believes in my son. The gospel of justification by faith alone is God's gospel, preached at God's initiative with God's authority. And so we can know that the one who believes will be justified. The one who believes in the Son will be regarded as righteous by the Father. This means that we are not today under law. This means that we do not have to establish our own righteousness through, through works of the law. It means that all that is required of us to receive the salvation that God has accomplished through His Son is to believe in the Son. And so if you are here this morning and you have never believed, if you have, if you have never believed this gospel, if, if church for you is just a cultural thing, something you, you do on, on Sunday morning, then you need to know that there is nothing you must do to qualify yourself. There is nothing you must do to, to position yourself to receive God's salvation. The free offer of the gospel is to you. Believe and you will be saved. The only fitness he requires is that you know your need of him. That you know yourself to be a sinner without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, received by faith alone. And of course this means that if you are a believer, it means you are righteous. Not because you have established your righteousness through your good efforts, through your good works, but because you have received and rested upon the Son. You are righteous. You are right with God. You are a son and an heir of His kingdom, not because of works, but because of His grace. You know it, but if you're like me, you struggle to believe it. It's so easy for us to, to fall into that way of thinking that says, no, no, I, I have to be better. And God is in the business of making you better. God shows you before the foundations of the world that you might be holy and blameless in his sight. He will not quit until he is finished with you. And when he is finished with you, you will be holy, even as Christ is holy. He is transforming you. He is making you new. But understand this. That those are the blessings of your salvation, not the way you earn it. Your salvation is his free gift, earned by Christ and received by faith alone. And that means that if you are resting upon him, you are secure. If you're looking to your works for your assurance, you will never have it. But if you look to Christ, whose work is perfect and finished, then your assurance cannot be shaken. For he is even now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people. And he will not fail to bring to completion the good work that he has begun in us. He will bring us into glory. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all good things?
He did not spare his son, but put him forward as a sacrifice for our sins. How will he not bring to completion that good work on his day? That is the hope of the gospel. That's the hope that is ours today through faith and through faith alone. And because such a hope is ours by faith, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you now. We come before you humbled by this gospel. Father, we recognize that we are sinners. We recognize that that we are incapable of establishing our own righteousness through our works. We recognize, Father, that left to ourselves, we are utterly and completely without hope. But, Father, we also recognize that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you put forth your Son as the sacrifice for our sins, that we who were justly condemned might instead receive your blessing that we who were unrighteous might be declared righteous, that we who were ungodly might be called the children of, the God, of God. Father God, help us to, to know this gospel. Help us to believe this gospel. Help us to rest in this gospel. And help us to live out of this gospel to the praise of your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.